Welcome one and all to Podcast the Week for this wonderful week as we enter summer, as Game of Thrones is gone, dead, buried, as why not talk about not Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings. Um, natural segue. It's of course, you, you want to talk about the good fantasy epic as I go into in the intro to the actual main segment of the podcast. This was recorded between episodes 5 and 6 of Game of Thrones season 8, so there's a small bit of talk there, but I don't believe there's any spoilers. And there's also some lawnmower sounds in the background, so there's not much I can do about that. Well, I could have recorded it not with the lawnmower in the background, but I'd have to be professional for that to happen, and we all know that's not true. So here is the final film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. James returns to talk to me about Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Welcome back to Podcast of the Week. If you were ever wondering what a large fantasy epic with a satisfying finale that's true to the characters and the story they told looked like, uh, don't watch Game of Thrones. Watch Lord of the Rings Return of the King instead. And James has returned to talk about Lord of the Rings. How about that Game of Thrones, James? Oh my god, I'm, I'm actually so... like I, I love Game of Thrones and I, and I really like season 8, but I'm so relieved to come back to like this regular fantasy that's just like good versus evil and no one complains <laughs> yeah and every, and then like there there's a, a female character that that kills one of the big bads of the universe and it was in 2003 and i don't think anybody complained then like i was watching this film and like eowyn do you think eowyn in this film would have just infuriated 2019 internet oh we don't know but the thing is, I, I I actually probably should have looked this up in, in in the research to see what the internet reaction, like the the forums and message boards reaction was to at the time. How dare a woman do something in a film? Because that that, that toxic element of fandom, like I mean that that's been around probably like forever, but it's just with the advent of social media and stuff, it's just more kind of out in the open. I mean, we see it more on a regular basis. And people have felt emboldened by. The fact that there are other people who also hold terrible views. And they all come together to make stupid petitions. Oh, yeah. Oh, what, what do you think the petition would have been for this film? Because, like, I think this film is a deeply satisfying film that wraps up all of the arcs very, very well. But what, what do you think they would have been like, No, how dare you ruin my Tolkien? Definitely Eowyn killing uh, the Witch King. Yeah. Um, The multiple endings. Well, we'll get to the multiple endings eventually, but I feel like the multiple endings in this film is Peter Jackson had like four endings in mind, and he's just like, I don't know which one to go for. And then someone's like, hey, Peter, how about all of them? Yeah, I remember when I first saw in the cinema, I can't remember what age we were, I think when Fellowship came out, it was eight, so like ten, around. Uh, Yeah, I would would have been, when was it released? Uh, December, I would have been 11. 11, yeah. But I remember the ending uh, when Sam and Frodo were on uh, the rock just outside of Mount Doom and it fades to black and I was like, wait, th- that's it? And I was like, oh, no, no, here's, here's another ending. And then there's the the standing on the top of um, Minas Tirith as the hobbits take their bow, which I think is the best of the endings. Arguably, if they were to end it on, on like, earlier than they did, that, that would have probably been the ending to go with. Yeah, that's that's like the, the big swell. And then there's another ending. And then like even Frodo sails off into the sunset and we have another ending after that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just a lot. And that actually goes back to uh, Tolkien. He, I think he had, he couldn't fi- figure out how to end it. And his uh, publisher was like, well, we need to know what happens to Aragorn. We need to know what happens to the Hobbits, to like everyone. So like just put all the information in and let us like know what the ending is for everybody. And so you end up going with, like as you said, like four endings. Mm. So the the do you think, having watched this film, do you think the end of Game of Thrones is going to be Samuel Tardy closing a book called The Song of Ice and Fire? <laughs> that would that would make so many people so mad. Because like it wouldn't be a terrible ending. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's one thing with Game of Thrones is I, I I don't look up spoilers or anything for. So like I'm genuinely surprised each and every week, even though I can have like an idea where it might go. And but with the finale, I've I've no idea where it's going to end. Yeah, and that, that's kind of one of the best feelings is that I'm going to not expecting. 
So Lord of the Rings Return of the King, it opens with I think what they're the, the main the main crux of this film, at least from the Frodo and Sam perspective, is one of them is going to turn on the other and when is it going to happen? And they really do drive that home with Schmeagle turning on Deagle. His name is Deagle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Deagle. Schmeagle turning on Deagle immediately. Like Schmeagle is horrible. That's a pretty terrifying scene, like for like not a kid's film, but kind of like a teenage sort of film. It's it's still kind of a really impactful. Mm. He just sees that ring and he's like, I must have it and I'm going to murder you. And then there's like the slow descent into madness that is Gollum. But I love how you have the shot of, of the hand reaching down from Fellowship and then you find out, oh, that was that was Gollum, that was Smeagol all along. That, that was his hand reaching down for the ring. Mm. So that, that lays the seeds for, all right, Sam and Frodo. I, I don't think I cared much for it in two towers most of the sam and frodo stuff i'm more on board with it here i think they're 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 actually telling a story with it here as opposed to them just looking sad and wandering wastelands yeah i think i think with two towers they were kind of sidelined as like they took a backseat like aragorn was kind of like the the mvp of two towers and then they brought in rohan so it was kind of like more of a, a human like element to it rather than the hobbits and now in return obviously with everything wrapping up they have to be like the the central characters again hmm how do you, hmm. I, 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 I don't want to say I haven't read the books. I've read one and a half of the books, but also have absolutely no memory of them. How do you feel about an ending where Frodo refuses to throw the ring in, in Mount Doom, but then also doesn't die? Um, I don't know. What, I mean, what would happen after that? Frodo takes the ring. You'd probably be like immediately killed as soon as he stepped out onto like the, the kind of platform outside. Mount Doom. Like I, 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 I think from a storytelling perspective, the rules of storytelling. He loses a finger. All right, but mm. the the rules of storytelling suggest the moment Frodo refuses to throw that ring into Mount Doom, he cannot be redeemed. He must be killed. Even if the ring is still destroyed, he has to die with it. Oh, I don't know. Like I, I like the ending as is with Gollum dying with it. Mm, that is very good, I- and it's it's like a. I I know that the idea is almost like the gods intervened to save the world, isn't it? Mm. But like even as Gollum is going down into like, like the fire and the lava, like he doesn't care. Like he's literally he, burning alive. He's and he's in still, no just, paid, no still, paid still, at still, all. Like, he has the ring, so he he, he does not care. Like <laughs> he's just like nah, this is a good way to go. Just holding this thing again. But I suppose you kind of foreshadowed it in uh, Fellowship, in, in the prologue for Fellowship, when uh, Isildur uh, refuses to throw the ring in the fort, and then he walks away. Yeah. But so uh, obviously they have the audience that like, oh, oh shit, Frodo's going to do the exact same thing, and he's going to walk away, and darkness will reign. Do you think Sam would have done something about it? <sighs> Maybe that, that's the more interesting ending. Sam throws Frodo in for the sake of humanity. I, I, I think if, like, if the film had been made a couple of years later... Uh, during kind of like when the the Christopher Nolan Batman films were around, and we had kind of more darker and grittier blockbuster films, that may have been a, a change to the end, and they could have gone with Frodo becomes Sauron. That, that would blow a lot of people's minds. <laughs> I'm just spitballing here, just throwing out ideas. But it, it's just weird, like the Lord of the Rings, in, in comparison to a lot of blockbuster films of the time, like they were made mostly towards the end of the nineties, and mm-hmm. they came out post nine eleven. I'm like. Post nine eleven, like Hollywood and and cinema was like again like grounded, gritty, and it was all in response to the those attacks on that day. And yet, Lord of the Rings stands out as just like pure good versus evil, and there's a happy ending to it. Like it, it, it just it does not fit in that kind of time period. Like yeah, and there's like there's a remarkably small death count. Theoden is the only major death. Oh, if combat if it was made today, people would hate Theoden's the only person who died. Well, Denethor dies too. Uh, yeah, but you know, he, he's kind of evil in any way. So, like, <laughs> he does have quite the character arc in this film, where he's just like, he's, I... he's kind of slight, he's slightly redeemed a bit towards the end. Is he though? He tries to burn his son to death. He does, but then he realizes, oh, that's like a, a bad thing, and I actually love my son. <laughs> but then, obviously, he sets himself on fire, and he, yeah, yeah, which is a very good. I like John Noble a lot. Have you ever seen Fringe? I haven't fringe. I remember ads for on Squid One like years ago, and I never really watched it. I kind of just dismissed it. But like the last couple of years, people have gone back and kind of reappraised, and said it's actually like really good. Yeah, John Noble's performance in Fringe is not not that he's very good at this as Denethor, but his performance in Fringe as a like it's actually a relatively similar 
arc as a father that would go to extraordinary lengths for his son, uh, to for his dead son, in fact. Um, but yeah, he's very good in that. He's very good in this. But yeah, it's quite a good segment. Yeah, he's, he's very dis- despicable in this. Like you just immediately like do not like him. <laughs> yes, it's, but especially Jordan the uh, the dinner scene when uh, is is a uh, Mary. Not Pippin. Mary, Mary yeah. Oh, yeah, it's Mary. Singing. And uh, he's just munching on, on, on like the chicken and the, the grapes and the tomatoes and stuff. And but it's just in such a like an animalistic way, and you're kind of like it's just it's disgusting. It really is. And the first shot of him in this film, he's just sitting on the throne holding Barmir's uh, horn. Mm. So do, do you think he was either he either happened to be holding the horn or it's like Gandalf's coming? Get the horn! Get the horn! So <laughs> it's totally good. It's so set up. But um, you, you can appreciate his character a lot more if you watch the extended edition of Two Towers, uh, mm. which is that that extended edition is a much more complete extended edition than either Fellowship or Return, and adds so much more background to uh, the story for it than the Tor and Boromir and Fermir. Because yeah, the, 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 because Barmir disappears out of these films after Fellowship, but he's yeah. in the extended editions. And I like I I I've watched all the extended editions, and I think the the real point that the extended editions add to these films is that that story arc between Barmir, Faramir, and Denethor. Yeah, totally. Oh, I wonder how Sean Bean actually felt about like actually being uh, cut from the theatrical edition for uh, Two Towers. Like he got paid. Because I know for Return of the King, Christopher Lee was originally in it, and then they took out his scenes. And apparently, him and Peter Jackson just did not talk to each other for the next couple of years until like the Hobbit. Until he had to get paid again, and he came yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's actually that's actually one of the changes that he made for the script uh, from the book is that. Uh, Saruman dies towards the end of Return of the King in the book, and he's killed by Wormtongue, but it's in like the Shire. Yeah, he he go he goes to the Shire and conquers the Shire, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like that's I think that's kind of shown in Fellowship and like uh, like the nightmare kind of mm. thing in Mirkward, but um, we actually don't get to see it in Return of the King. We don't for good for good reason, like realistically that's like a side plot that you're like is this important to the overall arcing like for this already three hours 20 minutes long film it's like could you have included that entire side plot of sour and you'd have to drag one of the like lead characters off of the shire for no reason to take him down yeah it it was too much again it was Tolkien adding on an extra ending that you you just really didn't need oh we gotta know what happened to Saruman (laughs) But the thing is, at the end of the books, there's like an appendix at the end of Return of the King that basically tells you what happens to everybody. So you you didn't really need those extended endings. Like if you wanted to find out, you could have just gone to the back of the book. <laughs> or read the what's the detailed history of the, the Cimmerillion? Oh yeah, yeah. That's I think th- that's like a collection of different stories and uh, they're like anthologies and stuff. But it's really complicated. Yes. God damn it, Tolkien. Have you ever saw like there there's external examiner stuff for Tolkien for like the University of Limerick oh there was actually I think the Irish Independent did a piece on that last Saturday um, and he, how he visited uh, the Burn. I think it's the Burn in County Clare yes it's just and a that, rocks for your non-Irish listeners yeah, that, that was supposed to be his kind of inspiration for parts of the Shire and I can't remember he had an inspiration from Gollum and it came from I think an animal or plant or something around the region and it's Irish name translates to to the golem or something mm. so if you if you did a test of some sort in the university of limerick sometime during the time when tolkien was very prominent odds are he was the external examiner for one of your tests imagine that do like doing english and then having tolkien correct and like oh i wouldn't have passed <laughs> no i barely passed english in the first place never mind by the standards of J.R.R. tolkien well, like, apparently he had a great affection for Ireland, but because the political climate at the time, he sort of had to play it down, mm. which is a bit unfortunate. But um, now that we're kind of going back and discovering more about him, we know that an actual lot of the Lord of the Rings was inspired by like Irish mythology and, and Irish geography. And there is nothing we like doing more as a nation than co-opting things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if there is even a tenuous link to Ireland, we'll be like, oh, we're like Game of Thrones filled in Belfast all over it. That's the what that still blows my mind. Like Game of Thrones, like the, arguably the biggest pop culture show of all time, is like filmed in Ireland. 
and uh, freaking Star Wars. We are all over that as well. We built an entire tourism campaign around that. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, I'm surprised we're not doing like Ireland's Lord of the Rings mythology, where you just wander through the burren. I'm I'm surprised Marvel actually haven't shot over here. Marvel generally tend to shoot a lot of their stuff in Atlanta, Georgia, I think. Mm. But given Marvel are under the Disney brand as well, as well as Lucasfilm, I'm surprised they haven't shot anything here. They they do some stuff in the UK as well, don't they? Um, I'm not too sure. What Marvel property would like? Because they use Scotland for Thor Ragnarok. They did, yep. Which come on, you could make that Ireland, couldn't you? Who needs yeah, Scotland? Easily, easily, easily. Who, who, um, who has you, a... could, you could probably do like a Doctor Strange or something. Yeah, in, in Ireland, Celtic mythology, mysticism. We do, yeah. We're we're very important to the the realm of magic. <laughs> Some stone circles and stuff. I don't know. Well, we ever claimed the fame in uh, the the recent Iron Man films and Avengers films. Uh, Tony Stark's um, he's kind of like suit voice thingy that replaced Jarvis Friday. Friday. Yes, with the worst Irish accent ever. The first because that that was that debuted in Age of Ultron, didn't it? I think it was towards the end of Age of Ultron, yeah. Yeah, when, that's when Jarvis goes away, yeah. The yeah. first the first time I heard that, I had assumed what they had done was record, like, a localized version of Jar- of Friday for each region. That it would be like, she'd have an Irish accent in Ireland, she'd have an English accent, <laughs> and, you know, that kind of thing. That, that's a, Yeah, that's actually not uh, out of realms of possibility, like... Because they did that for Winter Soldier, where they had the list of uh, pop culture Pat Cap had to keep up with, and it was region-specific. Was it? Yeah, so so like the, it was like the Beatles in the UK, and then the, it would be Americans. I think it was Nirvana in the states yeah, instead of the Beatles. Yeah, stuff stuff like that. It was it was region specific. So I thought it's like, oh, have they done that again? And it's like, no. There's just a very stereotypically Irish voice. Which, but, but the thing is, I think the actress who plays who does that voice is actually Irish, but she's just exaggerating the hey, accent. Americans, they they like I don't have an Irish accent. The people give out about my lack of Irish accent all the time. <laughs> Why don't you have an Irish accent, little man? <laughs> like, like I was teaching in secondary school, and they're like, "Sir, why don't you? Uh, are you from America?" It's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I've literally never been out of this country for longer than two weeks at any given time. Oh. <laughs> I just didn't leave me alone. <laughs> uh, uh, Lord of the Rings. So we have Aragorn's little side plot where he goes and co-ops the dead, which. A lot of people don't like that, actually. The, it feels whole, like a uh, bit of a cop-out. Uh, what, that he, he comes back with, like, all the ghosts, and he just, like, ravaged, like, Sauron's Sar- armies? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a deus ex machina, sort of. But it's one that makes sense, because it's, like, totally in line with his arc. It's it's mm. kind of like, they're literally, like, and it's so on the nose, but they're, like, literally the ghosts of his past, or like, his family's past. And, like, it's about him kind of, like, trying to stop running away from it and having to face up to it and kind of like accept the yeah you are a king and, and you are a leader like of men and you kind of just have to accept your destiny sort of like with Frodo like yeah is the scene where they take over the boats of the the people coming that's only in the extended edition isn't it yeah it is um Peter Jackson is actually in that he's a cameo one of the pirate dudes on uh on the ship so Christopher Lee can't say a word he took himself out of the film <laughs> I, th- I think he has a cameo in every single one. He has a cameo in Fellowship. He's in when the the hobbits are coming into uh, the Prancing Pony, just up kind of like the, the muddy road. He's like one of the civilians on the sidewalk, and he's eating like a carrot or something, and just like looking menacingly at the camera. I can't remember his two towers uh, cameo though. Hmm. I think he might have been one of the soldiers at Helm's Deep. It's it's very it's I don't want to say easy, but like they 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 build it up as this thing where it's like you have to go into the very dangerous mountain where nobody has ever returned from, and they just like walk in and he's like, "Look at my sword! Now come and fight for me." <laughs> there's not like there's not like tension there, or like they don't really risk anything. It's just like, oh, it's it's all good. He's 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 our great 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 grandson. But it's actually weird. Um, we talk about like Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones subverting um, like standard fantasy tropes and stuff, mm-hmm. and that's actually kind of a, a subversion itself. Where it's the good guy who actually has like the ghost army. <laughs> it's like you have all your orcs and weapons, but I have a supernatural force that you can't even touch, but can murder that's you the, in an instant. It's so cool when the ship then pulls up to uh, the, the dock in. Um, 
in Gondor and they jump off the ship and it's like Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas and all the uh, the Mordor army are kind of like <laughs> Tony Trevious and then all the ghosts come on. <laughs> I think this. I think my favorite scene in all of Lord of the Rings is in this film. Which uh, that's not Legolas on the Olive film, does it? No, but it's up there. That's a good scene, <laughs> particularly the the button on that scene being that still only counts for what as one, which is yeah. a phenomenal <laughs> gag. <laughs> I think my favorite scene in all of Lord of the Rings is when the Rohirrim shows up at the Battle of Minas Tirith. Oh, that's that's so good, and too, then leads them into the charge. From from the the score to the way, like they hold on that scene the whole time. They don't like cut away to Gandalf for a while as Theoden rallies the troops and then charges. And like they, they they hold on the entire charge. It's not like they charge and then they cut to them running into all the orcs and stuff. That that's what I love about. There's no intercut with any of the characters. That's the sole focus. And the way the score just kind of rises and rises and lifts, and it's just like a goosebumps kind of moment. It's it is it is Theoden's big king moment before naturally, of course, he's murdered. But <laughs> is he? Well, is he more? Oh, he's gonna like, crush the dead boy's horse. <laughs> it's a pretty crappy way to go. He's not even killed. The horse <laughs> falls on him. Oh, but apparently that the, the scene with Tyrion uh, rallying the troops, they did like a hundred and fifty takes of Good that. Good lord! Like what? A hundred and fifty takes? What could they, they, they? Could they not get it by like fifteen? And like, I assume. How much of that is a take as well? Because there's a lot of horses. It's like back to zero. All your horses back over there. Yeah, like I mean, imagine. I, look, I hope that wasn't in one day because I just I, I would not have the the temperament to go through 150 takes. Like, what were they looking for? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you quite got it. Oh no, oh, Bernard, Bernard, get, get <laughs> you're so close, Bernard. Come on. Uh, he's he's pretty good in this, but he he was kind of like again he was one of the MVPs of Two Terror, so he mm. kind of takes a little bit of a backseat in return, which is that's the way it should be. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. But um, his rallying kind of thing it mirrors Aragorn's then later on when they're outside the uh, the Black Gates mm. and he's rallying what's what's left of them, and which is better though. Oh, it's much better. The one thing that always gets me though is Viggo Mortensen's accent slips into uh, his American accent <laughs> at one point. We did. We, Eowyn just stops having googly eyes for Aragorn when he walks off to the dead. It's like I shall fight now instead. Yeah. Again, again, it goes back to the books. The, the women in the books didn't really have, weren't given much to do, and there weren't really many women at all in the books. No. So I mean, at, at least Eowyn gets that 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 you'd seen that because uh, even going into it if you hadn't read the books as as a kid or even as an adult scene you're like oh it's going to totally be like Gandalf who faces off against like the Witch King and, and defeats him and then it's like hey when you can like oh so it's a, it's a nice surprise yeah it's, it's much better than her giving googly eyes to Aragorn which oh, uh, but, but Gandalf actually faces the Witch King in the extended edition oh okay, yeah uh, when yeah, he's, he's fight, fending yeah, him away he, from from the city yeah and he breaks his, uh, his staff which explains why he doesn't have the staff in the final scene. He's just yep. charging with a sword. By the way, in that scene where they're charging the the are the, uh, the 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 gates of Mordor, watch uh, Gandalf running. His sword just flails all over the place. It's hilarious. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I assume Ian McKellen is not a, a young man. I assume it wasn't him. It was probably his stunt double. But the 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 sword is just wobbling, and he's. Well, I, I don't think Ian McKellen was that young when he when he filmed this. He was he must have been in his what fifties at least fifties or sixties. Ian McKellen yeah, seventy nine uh, now. Because I mean, Chris Chris Lee must have been. I mean, he died in his nineties, so he must have been like at least seventies. Yeah, he spent most of these films standing still, though. So <laughs> that's incredible. Though. <laughs> his his one scene where he does any action, he just points a staff at Gandalf and flings him around. Also, yeah, but he, had, he he has such presence and he's so evil. <laughs> Yeah, Christopher Lee is great. It's a shame he's not in well, like, this film. I, I, I would love to see the timeline where Christopher Lee actually got cast as Gandalf and to see how he pulled that off. Or even Sean Connery. Apparently Sean Connery turned the, the role of Gandalf down. I still can't. I, still I, I don't can't. know. Sean Connery, there's something about him. He's so good, but he's so bad. And it's he's just such charisma. But like this, this cast is like so stacked as well. Like I mean, a lot of them were unknowns at the time, but just even mm-hmm. looking back now after the careers a lot of them had had, it's kind of like, well... And when you consider, like, Andy Serkis is probably the breakout star of the film? Arguably, I think, think, like, the the MVP of Return of the King is either Andy Serkis or Sean Astin as uh, Sam. I do like the the ending ending is an ending on Sean Astin. It's 
uh, which kind of drives home that this is at its core a Sam story. Yeah, look, it takes things kind of back to like uh, the, the ground level. It's not like the, the big hero or anything. It's kind of just like the average everyday like hobby. Yeah, the, the hero is is in us all in, in some level. We just have to be dragged across the world to destroy an evil ring. Yeah. <laughs> While literally carrying Frodo on your back. But that, that's kind of like the, the the whole overarching theme of like Lord of the Rings is that like it's about like the strength within like all kinds of people, big or small, black mm. or white, you know, hobbit or man. <laughs> that like when it comes to it, like they, they can defeat the, the biggest evil. And is Sam the only person in these films that just flat out gives up the ring? Um, Aragorn refuses it. And yeah, some people are like, I don't want to hold it because if mm-hmm. I do, like Galadriel's the same. It's like, I would, I would, I would try to rule well, but it would corrupt me and turn me into this evil, horrible force. Whereas, yeah, Sam is just like, he hesitates, but then he just drops it into Frodo's hand. Yeah, he's, he's just pure of heart. Yeah, Sam is the real hero of these films is what I'm saying. Although I've seen some people make the argument that Gollum is the real hero. He can't be the hero if he's trying to... He doesn't do it on purpose. (laughs) He is technically the person that destroys the ring and saves the world. It's it's actually wild how good Andy Serkis is throughout this trilogy when he's playing what would have been one of the first major motion capture uh, CGI characters. Mm. Like the the final scene in this film where he's dancing on the bridge in in Mount Doom, the gleeful look in his face as he just dances up and down. Like that's even funnier when you consider that. Like this is the best Oscar picture winner, and like <laughs> it's one of its main scenes is a little monster fighting an invisible man, and it's just like totally not what you would expect from like the Oscars and the Academy. No, that's I really miss films like this being nominated for awards. See, like I, th- I think this. I don't think it was Return of the King necessarily that that kind of won the nomination. It was kind of like an overall for like for like the trilogy as a whole. You know, it'd be kind of like if Endgame won the Best Picture at next year's Oscars. Yes. It would be more for the MCU overall rather than, than just for Endgame. Which happens a lot in the Oscars, where you see somebody get a a Best Pick uh, or a Best Actor award for what is probably their fourth best film they were nominated for, but it's it's more it's it's closer to a Lifetime Achievement award than it is actually awarding them for that particular film. Well, that's the, I mean, one of the the best examples is um, Martin Scorsese when he won um, he won Best Director for The Departed, and like The Departed is a really good film, it's one of his best. But it was kind of like them saying, "Oh, he's getting older, he's getting on, he might retire, he might <laughs> we die." We have to give him one. We have to, give it to him now, you know. <laughs> so it was kind of one of those sort of things. But like after after Return of the King, the Academy kind of stopped giving their big awards to like these big fantasy pictures and blockbusters. I wonder. How much of that is like the advent of CGI? I don't know. Like, I think the last big blockbuster to be kind of nominated for so many awards was Fury Road. Mm, which again, I think, uh, I'd imagine I don't, I don't know the production of Fury Road, but it was very practical, wasn't it? Yeah, mostly. Yeah, like I'm so, like if you've ever seen the, the behind the scenes stuff, like I'm surprised no one was like seriously injured or, or killed. <laughs> But like that, even that, like it was nominated for like the big categories, and then it was only given the technical awards, which seems to be the case for most blockbusters nowadays. You don't get the feature in best picture or best actor or best director. And like there, there are instances where they thoroughly like Patrick Stewart oh. for X Men or for Logan. Should oh. like if he, he, I'm still mad he didn't get at least the best supporting actor nomination. Yeah, no, he, he should have. He, he absolutely should have. But even with Fury Road, like, um, like I mean, that should have won best picture over the Revenant for me, like. I've, I haven't. I I didn't love Fury Road, but I also haven't seen The Revenant. So, but um, I I think with the success of the MCU and stuff, that maybe the Academy is kind of softening its stance, and it's like, okay, we'll we'll let them into the Best Picture now. Maybe nominate them, but they won't win. Well, Endgame shouldn't be a Best Picture nominee. I don't think so. No. No. Um, Neither, like, I, mean, I I love the film. I love the film a lot, but I, okay. I it's just like. It doesn't have anything particularly interesting to say. And I, I think oh, really? a Best Picture should have at least something to say. Well, well, I mean, that's that, that's it. And as, as we said, the, like, I mean, The Lord of the Rings is full of so, so many like like word, award-worthy teams mm. and overarching teams. That, uh, it, it definitely deserved the award that, that year. I'm even thinking, like... Uh, 
would I even like nominate any of the performances in Endgame? I don't really think so. Not that any, <laughs> like all of them are very good, but like people have been putting, saying, uh, "What about Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark?" And I'm kind of like, eh, maybe you could nominate. I, I wouldn't have him as, as as the winner, but yeah, if you wanted to nominate him as as like a whole for his his work throughout the entire MCU. Yeah, if you were going to nominate him, you should have nominated him for the first Iron Man. Yeah, but like I mean, it's it's so weird now that he's so associated with that character. It's just crazy. Like, like Iron Man was. I'm not gonna say the laughing stock of like the MCU. Oh, he's a, he was a total B character before the MCU began. Yeah, he's he's not quite like Batman level because I, I no, checked I checked anymore. I checked the Google Analytics for this because I was going to send a tweet about it, but then I didn't because I was kind of wrong. Like <laughs> he's he's in terms of like searching, like Batman still runs away with like Batman is far and away the the, well, the probably the most searched, most well known and popular superhero. But he's he's like on par with Superman these days, and Superman has had a much longer period in like the cultural lexicon than Iron Man has. Yeah, like it's well, like I, I remember going up with the Marvel series uh, cartoons, and Iron Man was still always the, the B plus player. Like I mean, it was always the Hulk and Spider Man and X Men who yeah. were far away and ahead of him. But I, he had his own cartoon, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't good at all. I never, uh, I don't think I ever, re- I think I watched like two episodes. It's like he wears suits. That's boring. I, I think I think it was really short lived, and the Mandarin was like the, the main uh, the main villain for it. My rings. But um, like look, his, his film, his film trilogy has 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 been really good, and like they say to someone as a Marvel fan of the nineties, oh, Ardman's going to lead like the Avengers and like the the twenty ten film version. Yeah, like even Cap, they've they've great like not that Cap was a very famous character, but I don't think anyone would have said Cap was cool. And I think well, I, I, people... think, I think he was always kind of like a caricature. People didn't really take him seriously. You know, oh, Captain America. Uh... Yeah, because I saw the the was it the yeah I think oh, was it the Russos or the writer? No, it was the writers of uh, Marcus and McFeely. Those yeah. are their names. Yeah. They were like the character from the X Men we'd most like to take take over and deal with is Cyclops. Because he's basically Captain America in that he's kind of a punchline. Yeah, that that actually be really good. I th- I think they'd write him pretty well. Yeah, just did. Yeah, even him. when we do get the X Men uh, series again. Just yeah, bring back poor James Marston. Oh, he deserves so much better. He's such a good actor. Yeah, I think he, he if he actually who's act, who's the Cyclops in the younger ones? Oh, what's his name again? Um, he's the dude who starred in Ready Player One. Uh, oh, he was, yeah, he, he yeah, was the, the, the main actor. Yeah, him. Um, um, he's, not, he's not too bad, but I just I, I have no interest in in X Men right now from Fox. I like the X Men films. <laughs> I say with a with a hint of melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like that they're different uh, and they do offer something different, but like it's just the filmmaking has just gotten so shoddy. And uh, as you've seen with like the likes of New Mutants, it's being pushed back and back and back when it should have been released like uh, a couple of months ago. Well, Dark Phoenix should be... Uh, what I'd really like to see, because they've introduced the idea of the multiverse, even if they retain none of the canon, I really hope they keep the actors. Yeah, I, I, I like a lot of the, the casting for for the actors, but I, I think even like so Jennifer Lawrence, she looks really bored playing Mystique, and you can see in the makeup is getting less kind of uh, complicated and ex- exaggerated because she's just not bothered. This is true hours and hours of makeup. Which you can't blame her. We no, have to no, turn no. you blue every morning for four <laughs> hours. <laughs> I'd, I'd eventually be like, can we just do more human scenes, please? Thing, but like, I mean, people want Hugh Jackman back as as Wolverine. I don't know whether yeah. I want him. in the MCU because his Logan Endman was just so perfect and heartbreaking. I, I would hate to kind of take that away. Yeah, really, all I want is Fassbender, McAvoy, and Nicholas Holt. Yeah, Fassbender is so good as Magneto, but his, his, his story and his arc has been repeated and repeated over and over in the last couple of films. Yeah. Back to Lord of the Rings. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> this whole Return of the King. Music. I, I, oh, I, I can't you... let them hear. Like, has Howard Shore okay. done anything good other than these films? I think what, he's, he's done The Hobbit, and he's repeated himself a bit in The Hobbit with some motifs and, and themes and stuff. But, I, like, I mean, The Lord of the Rings, when you think of the music, it, it's like Star Wars. It just, like, instantly comes to mind. Mm. But he's, I don't think he's still being recognized as, as to the, the work that he's put into those that trilogy, actually. Yeah, but like when you say the Star Wars, it's like John Williams, who everyone knows for all of the John Williams films. Mm. Whereas like I'm looking at Howard Shore's filmography now, and there's like Hugo, just a film I liked. 
There's... Oh, yeah. That was Martin Scorsese. Yep. Yep. There's Twilight Saga Eclipse. He did the music I've for, n- apparently. I, I've never seen the Twilight Saga, and I like Robert Pattinson, but I'm, I'm not putting myself through the Twilight Saga. Like, for, for somebody who made what I think is objectively one of the best film scores of all time. He's not really gotten great work after yeah, it. Yeah, there's, there's not much else going on after it. Like, I mean, if, if I'm Kevin Feige at Marvel, I'm kind of like, why don't we get Howard Shore to do, like, a big Avengers film, you know? Yeah. But, like, but he, just the work he's put into Lord of the Rings, like, even the lyric sheets and stuff that he gave out to his orchestra members... Like, the detail in those was so nerdy. He put in, like, the lyrics in the Yorkshire language and Orkish and Elvish. What a dork. It's or- great. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, he, even, like, the motifs and the kind of, like, themes and stuff that he used, like, he didn't pull from any of his previous work, whereas a lot of directors do. Like, Hans Zimmer, I think Gladiator, his score for Gladiator, is really similar to his gl- score for Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm. And it actually uses similar kind of uh, musical cues. And like and even he, even if you like John Williams is probably the best film composer of all time, but there, he certainly has a style. He does. If you there's actually and this this goes back to pro wrestling, but um, Ring Camp's uh, independent uh, team, Walter's team, uh, which is Symphony Number no. Nine by uh, I think he's an Austrian composer called Dovrak. Um, if you listen to that, you will hear all of like John Williams' influences for Star Wars. Mm. So, like, John Williams pulls a lot from orchestral, the classic orchestral music, whereas Howard Shore doesn't really. But, like, there's actually a really good fact is that in Lord of the Rings, he uses over 100 uh, motifs, which are kind of like um, themes and musical cues uh, for moments or characters. And in comparison, John Williams' composition for, like, Star Wars only amounts to, like, 50 themes overall. Indeed. Which is, like, less than half, like. But, like, so... That means, like, if you compile Howard Shore's work with Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, like, that would make it not only, like, the most thematically complex uh, score in cinema, cinema, but, like, actually one of the most complex, like, to ever be recorded in orchestral music history. I feel like film, like, film music and video game music has essentially replaced the function classical music used to play, uh... Because has, like, the classical, classical music hasn't gone away, but obviously it's not like anywhere near as as popular in, in the mainstream as, as it used to be. Like it's 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 as simple as we found a practical use for that music, you know? Yeah. <laughs> instead instead of making it for music's sake, we started making that kind of music and applying it to other forms of art. It's weird, like I mean I mean cinema you can't have the visuals without the music anymore. You can't have the music without the visuals. I mean it goes hand in hand. Mm. And this this soundtrack, as you said, the, the number of themes that run through this, like the, the Rohan theme and the Fellowship theme and the Gondor theme and all the, all the little bits. And of, of course, the Hobbit theme, which is what he goes back to most in the Hobbit trilogy, which naturally. <laughs> but all all those themes that run through. And as I said, the, the wonderful moment where the Horahim show up and that Rohan theme plays and they march across the plains to, to, to run them down. It's like I, probably a good 85% of that scene it, it's tremendously shot and acted and directed but that music is where it just gets you on an emotional level yeah it's, it's such a kind of like a fist pumping moment and it's the same with John Williams and Star Wars is that so much of Star Wars' DNA is, is John Williams' music I would say most of what makes Star Wars good is John Williams' it's John Williams music yeah <laughs> Like, like I couldn't imagine Lord of the Rings as, as kind of like a silent film or like with someone else composing it. Like if you if you recut the original Star Wars to just include like boilerplate music, the rest of that film doesn't hold up very well at all. Oh, it, it wouldn't be great. Like the likes of Empire and stuff, a lot of the big moments would still be good, but without that 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 music and that emotional punch, it, it just wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. Which is probably one of the the reasons Endgame was pretty good. Because um... yeah, surprisingly, because the MCU isn't like really known for having great musical scores. Because uh, Michael Silvestri's Endgame score, Michael Silvestri is that his name? Yeah, I think he he and Danny Elfman worked on the first Avengers and came up with the the, the main team. No, Alan Silvestri. There we go. Alan I knew Silvestri, I knew it sounded sorry. wrong. I was like, that's not right. But yeah, because it was he worked on the first Avengers. Yeah, then Danny Elfman worked on the second one. Danny Elfman's another really on the right composer. He uh, he did the team for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and Tim Burton's Batman. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the Tim Burton Batman one is, is as iconic as you get. 
But that's the thing that that, that that's a thing that stuck with that character now throughout every kind of medium in TV and film. And like no matter how much Hans Zimmer tries, his blah one isn't nearly as good. Yeah, no, Hans Zimmer scores were good, but they were real kind of uh, stripped down and and and, and basic. Mm. I, I I do like the iconic character themes. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Even with Superman, I'm kind of like. He should really have the John Williams score. It should be like James Bond that way. No matter what, who's playing Bond or who's directing it, he always has that like iconic team. Like the the highlight of Justice League is that moment where they play John Williams uh, like a warped version of John Williams score to represent evil Superman for a little while. But they even do that at the beginning of Justice League. The uh, and it's actually Danny Elfman again who scores that. Uh, he cues in his Tim Burton team a little bit. Mm. Not nearly enough for my taste, but yeah, the, the, there's uh, there's like a Batmobile scene where there's like do 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 do. It's like oh, yeah. just just play the songs. <laughs> you just want the song. <laughs> but yeah, the music in Lord of the Rings. It's I I cannot possibly overstate how how important that. As I said, Howard Shore has basically gone on to do nothing. <laughs> how has it, that happened? <laughs> it's it's such a shame. Like and his his score is so complex. Like even going back to the first podcast. Um, we discussed the the fellowship team mm. and how as the fellowship uh, splinters and breaks up over the course of the film he takes specific instruments out of the team so it becomes less and less and the score changes that's just how is so he... when like Aragorn leaves like a, 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 a like an instrument that would be kind of like related to Aragorn it, that disappears from the, the over oral team like like it seems like easy when you say it, but then you're kind of thinking, I, I wouldn't have thought of that at all. No, know? not at all. I'd be like, that's a cool song. Let's play it more. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my. It's like, yeah. Uh, this was an extraordinarily successful film. One point, like one point one billion seems in in end game money. Seems seems fairly modest, but the, these were days when one point one billion was an awful lot of money. Yeah, like uh, it's on the box office gross. Um, it's I think a little over one billion. It's like one billion one hundred nineteen million something. <laughs> but um, on on the actual list, it's ranked at like twenty four, and I think it's like sandwiched between Skyfall and Transformers: Dark oh, of the Moon. I that's think. that's Which genius company. <laughs> but it, it's it, it made more money than the uh, the other two entries in this trilogy. Yeah. It's amazing that, like, fair enough, these are not inflation adjusted or anything. Ninety-four million budget, which is just—that's—that's. Okay. That's, I mean, by today's standard, ninety-four million for a blockbuster this size is like nothing. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think Dawn of Justice was five hundred million or something, apparently. Good lord. <laughs> which is, I think, I actually made less than that. Like, yeah. And you see, like, boondoggles every year that are just, like, these big fantasy sci-fi films that cost $200 million to make and end up making $75 million. That they, they all want to be the next Lord of the Rings or the next, uh, like, Game of Thrones, I guess. But it just turns out to be, like... What was that? Well, that's a thing. Like, I, I imagine once Game of Thrones finishes, HBO will be desperate and they'll just throw money at whatever to try and make it the next Game of Thrones. How many books do you think HBO have optioned? just to be like we need something after Game of Thrones so literally like I, I, I know for a fact most like fantasy novels are sent to stuff like TV studios before they're even released but HBO must just have a, a bunch of stuff they've licensed just sitting there being like eh, maybe that <laughs> well they have a Watchmen TV series coming up and I think they're kind of hoping that'll be the, the big hit of the summer mm. but as, as long term I don't think they really have anything in line to replace Game of Thrones although they have the prequel series that they've greenlit uh naomi watts who actually is the star of king kong peter jackson's king kong she's going to be in it yes so they're going to replace game of thrones with more game Game of thrones (laughs) but amazon are well placed though because amazon have their lord of the rings tv series so amazon might get a head start on you know having the next kind of game of thrones big tv show isn't that tv show based around aragorn that was the rumors earlier on um and apparently a couple of people behind the scenes are saying they don't really know what way they're going but now they've set up like a twitter account and they're teasing like uh, a map of middle earth which is like a thousand years old so it's way before his time like oh so it's like original sauron fight time yeah i think that's 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 around the period i can't remember the name of the period but i, I think it's around the same which would be the second age that might be it because Lord of the Rings is the third age and Frodo says at the very end of this film that oh, it's the dawn of the fourth age so I assume oh. that's the second age or maybe the first I don't know 
But like they haven't cast any showrunner actors. Um, we don't know even a basic plot. Is it connected to Jackson's films? Is it kind of standalone? Well, the, they they can't be connected to Jackson's films, can they? I don't know. Because I mean, that's a Warner Brothers deal. Like Warner Brothers have the rights to the Lord of the Rings films. Oh, to be fair, yeah, yeah. So Amazon I, bought bought the rights for the TV series from uh, the Talcum family. So th- this is a book thing. So I don't think it, if it's connected to these films, they need to pay Warner Brothers, or they'd have to be very tongue in cheek about it. Well, look, even going back to uh, when we were talking about how if this was released in 2019, people get mad over. Mm-hmm. Like at the time these films were released, there were a lot of book fans that were like, "Oh, but they left out this part and they left out this character, and why wasn't this included?" So it's it's kind of similar to the whole Game of Thrones book fans versus TV fans that we have today. Again. The film is three hours and twenty minutes long, <laughs> and you're already complaining about multiple endings. What more do you want? Like, like you, I, I'm always a little annoyed when people complain about when things are adapted, because an, an adaptation of something should not just be let's point a camera at the book and film it. That's that's not how it should work. It's one of the things that Jackson is praised for is that he knew what to get rid of and what w- wouldn't work on screen. Yeah, like even if you look at the Harry Potter films on which J.K. Rowling consulted, there's a ton of stuff in those books that's just cut. Because it either doesn't work for the narrative of the direct story they're telling in the film, or it just, they don't have enough time. Yeah, it's a a completely different medium. An adaptation, the sole thing an adaptation should seek to do is capture the spirit of the source material. Which is why the MCU has been so successful. Yeah, when you look at the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer... And you watch oh that, <laughs> like it's terrible looking. But the reason it really is terrible looking is that it just doesn't feel in any way whatsoever like Sonic. No, I, I feel so bad for the VFX team now who have to more than likely crunch and do overtime just to try and get the character closer to that classic look. And like, let's face it, the look of Sonic was the least of the trouble of that trailer. <laughs> yeah, but to be fair, like, I watched it and I was like, this is so bad, it might be good. <laughs> yeah, it might be entertaining in how terrible it is, but, but everything but about that, they... that trailer is terrible. Yeah, but now that they've gone back to kind of recorrect the CGI work, it's gonna be gonna, it's not even going to be ironically bad anymore, it's just going to be bad. Yeah, you're not going to get Meow. Meow's not going to become a meme anymore. <laughs> <laughs> But like the, the the sole aim when you're taking the Lord of the Rings books, all for, uh, including The Hobbit, which influenced this film, even though it wasn't made as a film until what 2011, 2012. Mm. Um, the so the sole goal should be to take the source material, capture the spirit of it, and adapt it to a different medium. I hate yeah. the people who are like, "Oh, you left out this and that, and it's not the exact same." It's like it shouldn't be the exact same. Otherwise, what's the point in turning it into something else? Just read the book. Exactly. And I'm always right about these things. <laughs> Do you have this film won 11 Academy Awards, as you said? It is joint for the most wins with Ben Hur and Titanic? Yeah. The only thing, though, what it holds over Ben Hur and Titanic is that both Titanic and Ben Hur were nominated for more than 11 and failed to win. So, Lord of the Rings is act- Return of the King is actually the first film to be nominated for that many and to win them all. Yeah, it swept. It swept. Ele- of the 11 it was nominated for, it won them all, which is absurd. Oh, it, and again, especially for a big blockbuster fantasy film, like yes, it is. As I said, I I, I sent a tweet last night because I've talked to some younger people who don't like Lord of the Rings, and I think the difference, the generational difference between Gen Z and millennials is whether or not you like Lord of the Rings. Because I I can see people; these films are very long, they are very dense. I can see people not having the patience for them, whereas I'm like, I want all of those sweeping scenes of Gandalf riding horses across clifftops in New Zealand. That's that's part of what I'm here for. Well, I mean, we we I mean, I suppose we're looking at we grew up on these films. Like, mm. if I was like my age now, having not grown up on them, and I went back to them, I'd probably think they were too long. Oh no, probably they they, they almost are objectively too long, but. But like I think for our generation, it's probably like the the Harry Potters that are kind of their kind of Lord of the Rings, basically. But ours is better. So. Oh, yeah, far, far better. <laughs> it is funny. This film is three hours twenty minutes long for the theatrical edition, and like there was that whole drama over Endgame that people like freaked out. It's like it's over three hours. Yeah, is there going to be toilet breaks? Is there going to be an intermission? Like I mean, like I mean, have you ever seen a film longer than two hours and thirty minutes? Like yeah, it happens. It just it hasn't happened lately because I remember the, my local cinema when I went to see this film it was the first and only time my local cinema has ever had assigned seating 
Like that. Really? That's like my my local cinema is usually not that busy. Like go to an average film, there's ten people there, so sit where you want. But that's crazy. <laughs> uh, but for this, there's just like there's so many. Even Endgame, which was sold out, it's just like uh, free for all. Sit where you want. Um, but for this, it's just like oh, we need we need to coordinate this. We do, there's so many people that want to see this film. Like this was really the cultural cultural touch point of our childhoods, anyway. As, as we eleven year olds and ten year olds going to see this film. We're lucky we grew up on Lord of the Rings, which is a big thing for me, and also where Star Wars kind of came back into the in, into pop culture with the prequels. Mm. So I mean, Star Wars obviously obviously became a big thing for me as well. I never liked Star Wars. I think most of those films are bad. <laughs> I, I, I beg the differ. I don't think I don't think most of them are bad. I think at least half of them are bad. I, I think they probably just should have left it alone after the original trilogy and kind of just left it at that, like. I think it's like a 50-50 shot where they're not you're going to get a good Star Wars. Even like, as I said, The Last Jedi is literally a 50-50 shot because half of that film is really good and half of it is terrible. I don't know. I think, I think it's brilliant. And I was real kind of uh, meh on it when it came out. It wasn't great. And then I went back and rewatched it and I was like, yeah, Ryan Johnson like totally gets this. Yeah. He gets half of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to see what uh, David Benoff and D.B. Weiss do with their Star Wars after Game of Thrones. They're going to get so much hate, and, and I do not envy the press tours that they're going to have for that for that film. Yeah, like that'll hinge on the first trailer. Like, yeah, but if, look, I mean, they're, they're good writers, and they're much better than a lot of people on, like on social media are giving them credit for. Oh, yeah, so like I they've think, been thrown on the bus because they bottled the end of Game of Thrones, and like, yeah, they yeah. did bottle the end of Game of Thrones, <laughs> like they did. But like, like that's fair. I mean, HBO offered them ten seasons, and for this season, they offered them ten episodes, and they were like, "Nope, we're going to do Star Wars. We're good with six episodes." So yeah. that that's that's totally on them. Do you, do you have any remaining hot takes about Lord of the Rings: Return of the King? Um, do I have any remaining hot takes? Um, no, it still absolutely holds up. Um, I think some of the CGI is starting to show its age a little bit. The the green screening in particular is just like the, yeah, the, like, like, I mean, it's still better than most blockbusters today. And because because of the amount of it that was done practically, it holds up better than you would expect. But the, like the the green screen pop is particularly noticeable these days. Yeah, especially like, if I'm, you're watching on like a, a large TV and like the, the on the Blu-ray, it's like oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, super clarity like. Like I, I hope for the twentieth trilogy, twentieth anniversary, which is twenty twenty three, would be Return of the King twenty twentieth anniversary, which is weird. We're in like twenty nineteen. We're so old. Oh, I, I hope Jackson goes back with his team and kind of just retouches up some some elements of it and just leaves it at that. No George Lucas, yeah. uh, original trilogy tinkering, just clean some stuff up and re-release them all again on Blu-ray. I was gonna, I was gonna say the the director going back to fix his old material is a thing that doesn't generally. We should start a petition. Don't <laughs> don't ruin it. D- don't touch it. This is what you are allowed to touch. This is what you are not allowed <laughs> yes. to touch. You know. Uh, before we go, do you have anything? Where can people find you on the internet, James? Um, if you want to venture onto Twitter these days, it, it's like the Wild West. I wouldn't, but um, you can find me at CRS Van X, and that's pretty much it. I usually put everything up there, so. That is the show for this week. Thank you so much to James for talking to me about Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Those are those some good films. Watch those films if you've never seen those films. You can listen to new episodes of Podcasts a Week every single week at soundcloud.com forward slash TWSKK or by searching for the TWS Network on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Garrett Kidney, G-A-R-R-E-T-T-K-I-D-N-E-Y. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.